from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Well, if you're like me, most people like weddings, right? They're fun. Uh, they are exciting. Uh, they're usually very well remembered. I still vividly remember uh, my wedding. Uh, we had a beautiful day. It was May 14th, 28 years ago. Yes, 28 years ago. It was a beautiful May day. We were married at Center Grove. Not the one on the corner now, but the old original one down Center Grove Road at the very end down there. And, and uh, you know, it was just wonderful. Family was there. Friends were there. The church was beautifully decorated we had the reception downstairs and and little little chicken salad sandwiches that everybody enjoyed and a a nice wedding cake and and it was a lot of fun and of course i'm saving the best for last atlanta looked absolutely stunning walking down the aisle that day even though i gotta confess she was an absolute nervous wreck i mean she cried and boohooed the entire ceremony to such a great extent that she barely was able to get my wedding band on my finger, but I was there, I was patient, just held my fa- hand out just to to let her do it, and I'm not going to look over there at all, uh, but y'all can get her version later, and um, I, I might need a ride home um, after the service. But weddings are fun, right? Weddings are exciting events. And I bring that up because John chapter 2 this morning takes us to a wedding, right? John 1, the, the, the prologue, is setting the stage for all that is to come. John, the end of John 1, Jesus is on the scene only in that he has called a couple of disciples. Jesus hasn't really done anything yet. But that is going to change in John chapter 2 at a wedding in a place called Cana. It is where Jesus begins His public ministry. And His public ministry begins with the miracle of turning water into wine. And I bring that, I mentioned that story about my wedding because I want to, and you think about your wedding, I want you to remember that because we're going to need to ask the question that I think sometimes is missed in this story. Why is Jesus at the wedding? What is the purpose of turning the water into wine? Is it just that it's just a miracle? It's just, is it just that He happens to be there and, and He happens to do this? Or is there something else to the story that God, through His Word, is trying to reveal to us? Now, I'm imagining you already know the answer. The question is, what is it that He is trying to reveal to us? So let's read John Chapter 2, verse 1, down to verse 14, or excuse me, down to verse 12 this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. As we look at these verses, they just they kind of naturally break down into four sections. And the first section is the setting. We are told now through John and his time marker that we are on the third day. It is the third day from the previous day. So if you've been keeping track, as John has outlined the first week of Jesus' ministry, we are on day seven. We're on the seventh day. Now, on a side note, if you're looking for a day, it's like, man, how can I study God's Word more? Compare John's first seven days with the first seven days of the Genesis account in Genesis 1 through 2. But I'll let you do that on your own. But they're now on the third day, on the seventh day, they are in Cana, region of Galilee located between the Mediterranean, which would be on the west, and the Sea of Galilee, which would be to the east. And Cana is just about six miles north of Nazareth. So they haven't ventured very far. And it's a small, not particularly well-known city. But in this small city of Cana in Galilee, there is a wedding taking place. And we're told at this wedding that Mary, excuse me, that the mother of Jesus was there. Now we know that she is Mary. However, in John's gospel, she is never called Mary. She is always referred to as the mother of of Jesus. But not only is she there, Jesus is there. He was invited along with his disciples. Now, given the fact that it is said that Mary was there, that Cana is about six miles north of Nazareth, and what Mary says in verse 3, it is most likely that this is friends of the family, if not extended family. There is a reason that Mary is there, and she is able to at least speak to Jesus in a little bit when they have run out of wine. Now, the setting, though, at the wedding is so different than my wedding that I just described. Right? We need to, to, to go back and, and look at the culture of weddings because it was not just a celebration for the family, but for the entire village, for everybody in the village. Now, it doesn't mean everybody would be at the ceremony or everybody would be at the feast, but the whole village, especially in a small village like this, would know what is going on and would take part in, in, some play, in, in some way. Clemens technically is the village of Clemens, but the whole village of Clemens was not there, nor did they celebrate our wedding. They should have, but they did not. But the whole village would celebrate because part of the wedding culture back then would be a huge procession. And they would start in the evening. Now again, we got to bridge a little bit of culture. They would start in the evening, and we're thinking, why would they start at the end of the day? But they're actually starting at the beginning of the day. Jewish time was reckoned till about 6 o'clock at night. So if the wedding would start at 6.30, it's not at the end of the day, but it's starting the day. So they are starting their day with the wedding. But it's evening. 
So the processions would be by torchlight as the bride, as the groom comes with his entourage to go to get the bride and then arrive at the bride's house and pick up the bride and they would march through the town by torchlight and, and people in the, in the town would watch and, and would applaud or, or, you know, just celebrate with them. You can imagine how, how spectacular that would be. Right? I mean, it would just be a thing of beauty. And so the groom comes, gets the bride, goes back to the groom's house, and there they have what we would call the official ceremony. And then after the ceremony, there would be a great feast. Very similar to today, right? We have the ceremony. You usually go to a fellowship hall somewhere and have some type of reception. Very similar. And the whole event, from the beginning to the end, would be marked by joy, by celebration, unless something goes wrong. Because if something goes wrong, it doesn't matter how much fun you had, how great of a time it was, what is everybody going to remember? You remember the one thing that goes wrong, right? We were talking in Sunday school this morning about cars breaking down, right? You probably don't remember anything about the rest of the trip. What do you remember? You remember the thing that went wrong, (laughs) That's just, that seems to be how our minds work. And sure enough, something went wrong. There was a problem. And the problem is just very succinctly stated in verse 3 when Mary comes to, to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, this passage is not the place to preach on wine. It is not the place to preach on alcohol. However... I'm going to make two caveats right now, and they are this. Number one, the wine in the, in the New Testament is very different, not nearly as strong as the wines that are used today. And number two, the Bible absolutely, positively forbids drunkenness. So with those two things, because i would be a good Baptist pastor, we're going to set those off to the side, all right? But there's a problem. And the problem is they are out of wine. Now, th- this is... This is like being out of sweet tea at a feast, okay? It's a problem. You run out of sweet tea at Thanksgiving, there's a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's what they drink. It's to keep them safe because alcohol has, or the wine has been fermented. The impurities of the water now have been killed. They can drink it safely. But now there's, there's nothing to drink. There's a problem. You know, as I was writing this, I, I couldn't help it. And, and Carol's here this morning in Maryland as, as, as well. And I just, I wrote, I said, it's kind of like our potlucks, right? It, it's kind of like the potlucks when either Carol's deviled eggs run out or Maryland's uh, peach cobbler runs out. There's a problem. There, there, there's a problem. You got to go backwards through the line, guys. But there's a problem. And, and, you, and you want the problem fixed. Now, for us, it's just disappointing, and we make everybody know, hey, next time, next potluck, I'm, I'm, I didn't get any of the deviled eggs, I'm getting them this time. You know? For them to run out of wine is a much bigger issue than we understand. See, because after the, the, what we would call the official ceremony, there would be a feast that would last a week or longer. And it was the responsibility of the groom and his family 
to provide the food and the wine for the duration of that feast. Thank God some things in weddings have changed in 2,000 years. I wouldn't have wanted to entertain everybody at my wedding as much as I loved them, and I was glad that they were there for a week afterwards and have to feed them. You wouldn't have either. So it's bad enough. I mean, that's a big issue. Compound it in that ancient Near East culture was very much a shame culture. That if you did something that was your responsibility and obligation and you failed to meet that, you brought shame on yourself. So how would you, you're starting a new life as a bride and groom, as a new family, and and your family is starting under this auspices of shame that you've done something wrong. Three years from then, hey, were you at so-and-so's wedding? Oh yeah, the wedding where they ran out of wine? It's bad enough to be out. It's bad enough to be out in a culture of shame where your obligation was not met. You know what else could happen? You could be legally held responsible by the people attending the feast. To my knowledge, nobody has sued Carol for not bringing enough deviled eggs. Now, if we want to throw that in the hopper for the next potluck, we can. So, do you, But I, I say this kind of joking, but do you see the issue? They're, they just don't have anything to drink. They're going to be shamed for it, and they might be held legally responsible for this. This is a major problem for the couple. We know that they're out of wine because Mary approaches Jesus and looks at Jesus and says, They don't have any wine. Now, this is why I think Mary knows the family has some position within the family, because otherwise, what does it matter to her? I mean, you're not going to do this. So she goes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine, and she is, what is she doing, moms? What is she doing? She is using her position as mom to prod her son into doing something. That, that she's going to lean on Jesus and, and his resourcefulness to solve the problem. Most likely because at this point, Joseph is not mentioned in the story uh, or in the Gospel of John other than in the past tense. Most likely, Joseph is dead by this point. We don't know definitively, but most likely. So Mary has relied on Jesus to do many things. And so she goes to Jesus and said, they're, they're out of, of, of wine. Now, What she expects Jesus to do, we don't know. Right? The end of the story says this is the first of the sign that he had performed. Contrary to what we may think, Jesus wasn't running around as a kid performing all kinds of miracles. Right? He he, he didn't just walk into his room and snap his fingers and his room was clean. So we don't know for certainty what Mary is asking him to do. At the same time, Mary remembers a visitation by an angel that says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be no end. And that was in response to how? I'm a virgin. 
She remembers the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. She remembers the angelic announcement. What is going to happen? What has been prophesied about him through the angels, through him being taken to the temple? She remembers all this. So as we look at Jesus' answer, I think Mary is trying to do a little bit more than just get him to perform some function at the wedding, but push him into revealing himself as the Messiah. And we see this a little bit in his answer. Because he looks at Mary and he says, woman, which we, we just got to stop. Because we know right now, had any of us looked at our moms when she told us something and said, woman, the switch would not have been big enough. We would have been... <laughs> You only make the mistake of the small switch once. We would have been whooped, right? We do need to understand that it's, it, it comes across to us that way. It's really not that jarring. It would have been an appropriate response, right? I, I think I've told the story before when we were in Russia. The, the, the address to someone that you met on the street, if you wanted to get them out of the way, was man or woman, it's why when I was on a, a, a bus one day, I kept hearing the person behind me say, Machina, Machina, Machina. And I'm not moving because I'm like, oh, she's saying man. She means me. Okay, I'm sorry. You, you know, I turn around and then I tell her my, my accent of American Russian. I'm sorry. And she's like, oh, you could just see the expression on her face. Stupid American. I'm like, okay. So it's, it's not as jarring. At the same time, he says, what does this have to do with me? There is a deliberate distancing that Jesus is now putting in place. Woman, normal response, what does this have to do to me? I, I, he's distancing himself from Mary. Because as he begins his public ministry, a new relationship will now exist between Jesus and Mary and all his stepbrothers and his family in that they cannot use their authority, their connection as family to prompt Jesus to move. Why? Because he is here to do the will of the Father. Woman, what does this have to do with me distancing? I'm here to do the will of the Father. My hour has not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John, up until John 13, 1, or actually John 12, 27, 29, we keep reading that His hour has not come. His hour has not come. His hour has not come. The hour that He is talking about is when He is looking forward to His exaltation on the cross and His resurrection. That is His hour. My hour for exaltation has not yet come. So here, even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He's looking to the cross. He's already looking forward to the resurrection. Now, also, Mary appears two times in the Gospel of John. She is here at the beginning when His hour has not yet come. And the next time we find Mary... We find her in John chapter 19 standing beside the cross when His hour has come. Everything Jesus is doing now is moving forward 
to the cross. But, but, but we still have the problem. They don't have wine. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is Mary turns to the servants and say, hey, it, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Why does she do that? She was just, I think we could say, mildly rebuked, deliberate distancing. But again, as you go through the Gospels, you'll see this with Jesus. People will come and approach Him in what you could probably describe a little bit presumptuous. And Jesus will rebuke them for their reproach. And at the same time, He will respond in His own unique way, granting them their request in a response to their additional demonstration of faith, which is what occurs here. Jesus doesn't give Mary any indication that He's going to do anything. Yet Mary, in a second demonstration of faith, looks at the servants and says, whatever He tells you to do, do. And for that reason, Jesus looks at them and says, Okay, here's what I want you to do. There are six water, six stone water jars. Jesus looks at the servants and he says, I want you to fill up the water jars. Now the ESV here does the translation for us in the measurements. For each jar would hold about 20 or 30 gallons for a total of 120 to 180 gallons. Now, they don't have faucets. You know what I got for Father's Day this morning? Which I asked for, and I'm excited to get. I got two new garden hoses. I, I, I need two new water hoses. The, the, the hose that I bought a year or so ago that said, no kink lied. It kinks every time you use it. They said, what do you want? I said, I want a new water hose. I want practical. They got me practical. Water hoses didn't exist. There's no tap. They can't go and attach the hose to the spigot and fill up the pots. They got to draw the water out of the wells, carry it, dump it, do it, repeat over and over and over to 120, 180 gallons are in the stone jars, filled to the brim. Like, that, why is that important? Nothing else can be there. There's not going to be any deception in just a minute when Jesus tells them to do something else because it is filled to the brim. And then He just looks at them. What's the problem? They're out of wine. Go to the jars where you just put water in, draw the water out, take it to the head of... Uh, the ceremony, the master of the ceremony, and, and, and give it to him. Now, we got to reward the servant's faith. Fill up the jars, they did. Go draw out of the jars, they did. Take it to the master of the feast, and they did. And I'm wondering, do they know what they're taking? Do they think they're just taking water? Because that's going to put them in kind of, here, we've got you some, well, here. Right? We, we don't, and I just mentioned that because here's, here's the miracle, right? And one of the things I keep talking about with Scripture is a lot of times things are just so understated. The miracle is in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted, and here's the miracle, the water now become wine. Water, wine, that's the miracle. That's all we're told about it. We don't know when it happened. We don't know if the servants drew out the water and it was wine uh, before then. We don't know if it changed on the way. We don't, we don't know when the miracle took place. John says, water become wine. And he takes it to the master of the feast and 
The master of the feast is, is, is going to, to taste it, and he tastes it, and, and now he's going to call the, the, the groom over to tell him what's going on, and there's, there's a you old sly fox kind of discussion from the master of the feast to the groom. He calls him over, and, and he's looking, and he says, you know, many people, he says, in verse uh, 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. After their taste buds from days of eating have been dulled, you know, then they bring out the poor wine. But he's like, but you sly old fox, you, you, you brought out the good wine until now. The old all right wine is replaced with the new good wine. Can you imagine the groom? In that moment, and he doesn't know. Right? He doesn't know. The people that know what happens is Jesus and the servants. He doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is there's wine to drink. There's not going to be any shame. And I don't have to pay. Relief, relief, great relief doesn't know what's happened. The master of the ceremonies doesn't know what happens. All they know is there was a problem. There's no wine. There's a solution. There is wine. And it's very good wine. It is good wine. So we get to the end, and we've got to ask the question, is, is, is this the point of the story? That Jesus comes in and saves the day and the wedding can continue and everybody can continue to celebrate. Yay, Jesus. Is, is, is the point of the story that, that Jesus enjoys being where people are celebrating? Is the point of this story that Jesus provides abundantly more than, than we need? Because He just provided 180 gallons of, of, of wine. I don't know how long it would take us to drink 180 gallons of sweet tea. Right? Put that in context. Is, is, is that it? I mean, all of those are true, is it not? I mean, Jesus is where people are celebrating. He is always in the midst of people. People come to Him with problems. He solves them in His own unique way that demonstrates who He is. He gives us what we need abundantly. My joy, I've come to give it to you so that you may have it abundantly. But that's not it. That's not the point. Because John makes it very clear at the end, verse 11, this the first of his signs. Water become wine is a sign. Now, as I said that, I hope you remember John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are now not written in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The key word in all of this is sign. And while we may want to call it a miracle, and it is a miracle, John does not use the word miracle. John uses the word sign. And John is going to record seven specific signs in his gospel. And he uses the word sign 
And he mentions them because they are pointing to something greater than just what happens. Right? For, for John, the signs are directing our attention to who Jesus is. They're not just that Jesus demonstrates His power. It's telling us about who Jesus is so that we can see the sign and that we can believe that He is the Son of God, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that we can believe in Him. So how do we make that connection? Well, it has to do with the jars. They are stone jars, it says, for the Jewish rite of purification. You don't need to turn there, but Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? These are stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification. It's not turn on the water, squirt a little soap in your hands, and clean your hands so you don't eat with a dirty hand. It is a, a, a whole process that renders you clean so that you can eat. When you go back and you read Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy, you will notice the repetition of the words clean and unclean. Clean and unclean. If you have an infected spot on your arm, you're unclean. If you touch a dead animal, you are unclean. If, if you do any one of the, the prohibitions in those books, you are unclean. You could not, as an Israelite, escape the unclean, clean requirement of your life. Your whole day revolved around whether or not you were clean or unclean. But the problem is the normal state is unclean. Our normal state is not sanctification. Our normal state is sinner. So back in those books, before you sacrificed, before you went to the temple, before you went to a wedding ceremony, you had to remove the ritualistically unclean component of your life. And you had to do it according to the law. Again, I've said this before, nothing in Old Testament instructions for religion allowed you to express it in a way that you wanted to. <laughs> you followed the rules. You followed the laws. And you would have to clean yourself according to the law. But what is the problem? You clean yourself, you go make your sacrifice, you leave. What's wrong now? You're going to be unclean again. And before you do the next thing, what do you have to do? You have to clean. And then you're going to be unclean again. So what do you have to do? You have to go back over and you have to clean yourself again. And then what? You're unclean. And then you're clean. Do you see the constant? You are unclean, then clean. You are unclean, then clean. You are unclean, and then clean. It is a never-ending process. 
because the law could never make the hardened, sinful heart clean once and for all. Now hold on to that puzzle piece for a minute because the other puzzle piece is the word wine. Wine is important. And not just because it's a drink. Throughout the Gospels, they talk about old wine and new wine. The old wine, old wine is the old covenant. The new wine is the new covenant. We're at the marriage feast in Cana. What is gone? What is missing? The old wine. What does Jesus bring? What does He make? What does water become wine? He makes what? The new wine. Do you see how these two pieces of the puzzle fit together? The sign when we come here is to see that the requirements set forth by the law to be holy, nobody could fulfill. The signs, or excuse me, the requirements set forth by the law to, to cleanse your heart could not be continually filled once and for all. So we come here and what we see is the something greater that has, that the law has been pointing to has arrived. And the something greater is the Word became flesh. God the Son stepping out of eternity and onto His creation, coming to accomplish what the law could not do. He has come to bring the new wine of the new covenant. Jesus will do what all the ceremonial cleansing could never do. Right? They're sitting in an upper room. Jesus is with the disciples. And He looks at them, and He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. The old is gone. The new has arrived. And the new is through Jesus Christ. He has come to fulfill the law and do what the law could not do. Now that's pretty amazing. But that's not where I want to end this morning. I want to end in one more place really quickly. Because that they are at a wedding. And a wedding is going to become an important theme throughout the New Testament to describe the relationship between Jesus and His believers that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteousness deeds of the saints. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus and His believers are united for all eternity. It is a great celebration because we are with our Savior. 
And how then do we get to be part of that wedding celebration? Well, we do it the same way that we see the disciples do here. It says that Jesus in turning water become wine demonstrated and made manifest His glory. The disciples saw His glory and they believed in Him. And today, Jesus is still revealing His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. And for everybody who sees His glory and believe in Him, because He has come to bring in the new, believe in Him that He is Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone who believes in that will be at that marriage supper in Revelation 19 where we celebrate for all eternity. And this is how Jesus begins His public ministry. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.